You're listening to the Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. This week we want to tackle part two of our series we started last week, just a quick two-part series on young age creationism and pseudoscience. Is young age creationism pseudoscience? That's the question that we've been asking and dealing with. And what we are discovering here is that there are four, I guess you'd say, main areas in which um, we could distinguish young age creation science from mainstream science. And again, we um, agree on many things. Uh, most matters of observational um science we would agree on. Now, a lot of times there seems to be this um, post hoc um, appeal to evolution theory, as it were, when we're, when we're observing things about our world today. So, for instance, we might um, observe a behavior or something that takes place in our lives today, and then, uh, of course, the evolutionary biologist might come in and say, well, this is uh, as a result of our flight-or-flight mechanism or, or, or whatever that is, and we've all heard things like that. And so we, uh, while we do agree on most matters of, uh, uh, of operational science and observational science on things that we can see today, sometimes we, uh, of course, interpret the past differently. And, of course, that's because, um, as we have seen in our series on uh, Searching for Adam, we've seen the biblical past, the biblical history of the earth, is quite different than that uh, taught by conventional theory. And of course, we know the proper way to ascertain history is by a written eyewitness account. And thankfully, that's what we have on the pages of God's Word. Now, there are, again, as we've said, four areas that we have been looking at. And last week, we looked at just two of them. We started out by looking at dinosaurs. How are we different from the mainstream interpretation of dinosaurs? Well, of course, we saw that some of the first words that you'll ever read uh, as a human being on Earth during this time uh, is in the, you know, millions of years ago, 60-something million years ago, dinosaurs ruled the Earth, right? For many of us, these are some of the first words uh, that we ever read. And so as a part of this evolutionary uh, paradigm of, of looking at the world, we see that dinosaurs are... Uh, seen to have lived much longer than, uh, much longer ago, rather than humans did. And of course, there's about six or eight theories right now, or more, on how the dinosaurs died out, according to conventional theory. Uh, still nobody really knows. Some people say that they just evolved into birds, and um, of course, many people, uh, even on the secular uh, side, are uh, skeptical of that. So... Um, there's a clear difference going on here because in our view, dinosaurs were created on day six of creation week. And of course, we argue that creation week was just over 6,000 years ago, somewhere just over 6,100 years ago. And so there's an obvious difference here. And of course, there's going to be a difference in the way that we think that they died out. We think that they died out as a result of the global flood. And again, uh, it might would be troubling if we looked around us and we could not see any evidence that there was indeed a global flood as described by the Bible. Um, but again, we do see that. We do see 
lots of fossils in the ground, and um, we even talked a little bit about the nature of uh, the fossil record last week, and we saw that, uh, indeed, the fossil record does seem to uh, to support this idea of a global flood. And of course, that brings us into the second thing that we talked about, which indeed was a global flood. And we saw that, um, in fact, the flood uh, model is a useful model of Earth history. We saw that it explains things that conventional theory just does not explain. Uh, It does explain, uh, in in my uh, opinion, from the research that I've done, it seems to explain everything that conventional uh, theory would explain as far as plate tectonics goes. Of course, uh, the flood model that we dealt with last week was catastrophic plate tectonics. And uh, we, we saw last week that not only does it explain uh, everything that uh, we know of that conventional theory explains, but also does a great job explaining some things um, such as uh, you know the zones of cooler material reaching from the ocean trenches to the bottom of the mantle, uh, these rapid uh, rapid magnetic field reversals and basaltic flows, and etc. Explains a bunch of other things as well, um, and of course found that uh, when we look at the Bible. And we see that there was a a global flood. We can look at the data that we find, and it appears to be consistent. Uh, We what we see in God's world indeed matches God's word. As long as we're starting with the right authority, we start with the Bible. We understand the proper history of the past. We can then do science in such a way that it, it, it properly is interpretive and properly descriptive of the actual history of the earth. And so when things like radiometric dating come up, which we're actually going to transition into here today, when things like radiometric dating come up, we can take heart that even though these uh, dates as given might be older ages than uh, in conventional theory, then we would want to uh, affirm have 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 taken place in the history of the Earth. We can look at other uh, types of, of scientific data and say, well, what 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 explains what explains this? And that's the kind of thing that we are going to get into today. So, where did this idea then, moving right along into dating, where did this idea of deep time? come from? Well, we saw in our last episode of the Searching for Adam series, we got a little bit of insight into this. And uh, you can, and I'll put this in the show notes if you want, but but, but you can reference um, uh, Lesson 32 to find out a little bit more detail about this, and that the name of that lesson was A Historical Adam and the Authority of Scripture. And you can go back there, and, and we talked a little bit about where this uh, idea of, of deep time, or millions and billions of years, or, or long ages, whatever you want to say, um, we found out where this idea kind of originated. And we saw that uh, James Hutton was one of the first to kind of put these ideas into place, which, of course, led to um, Dr. Uh, Lyle coming in, and uh, Charles Lyle, I think was his name, or Lyle, however you want to say that. 
And he came in, and I think he was the one who wrote the Principles of Geology book. And of course, he really helped to firm up and establish this idea of uniformitarianism. Now, remember that these ideas are being introduced into the mainstream um, well over 100 years before the time that radiometric dating became possible or, or was even known about. Now, of course, following in both Hutton and Lyell's footsteps, Darwin came on the scene. And Darwin, you can see it in his own writings, was quite influenced by these men, especially by Lyle. And what he proposed was that his take on the natural world, on um, the uh, what he observed or, and what he uh, hypothesized about biology would make sense under the conditions of long-age geology. Now, I'm going to argue, and I, I, I do argue, that we know more today uh, simply than we knew back then. And, of course, we have the correct history of the Earth preserved in the Bible. And so um, the question is, does the data match up when interpreting it in light of that? And, of course, I think it does. Now, uh, as we... And we're going to talk more about Darwin in a minute, so I don't want to get too hung up on that right now. But we do need to consider something here. Evolution theory requires long ages. Now, I'm going to say that again just so, so, so we can make sure we're clear on this. Evolution theory requires long ages. If you don't have long ages, then evolution theory insofar as we're talking about um, that all biological organisms are uh, share a common ancestor, right? That's called um, common descent. Insofar as we're talking about that definition of evolutionary theory, it requires the long ages. Without the long ages, it simply doesn't work. But what's interesting about that is that because that's the way that uh, the, the nature of evolutionary theory is, we're never going to be able to observe what evolutionists commonly call macro evolution um, in any uh, meaningful sense. In other words, we might see a breakaway population take place. In other words, we might see a, um, a, a, a population of finches, let's say, become reproductively isolated from another population of finches, which, again, one might call macroevolution. I don't think that's macroevolution. I think that's called speciation and variation. We, we'll talk about that a little more in a minute. But um, some would say that we could see macroevolution taking place because we see things like that. Um, others say that we could never see anything like that. And as a matter of fact, um, this quote from Biologos really just seals up the deal for me. In one of their articles, I think... Um, the the name of the article has something to do with speciation and macroevolution. I forget the actual title of the article. Um, I might have put the link down here. I'm not sure that I did. Um, I'm not seeing it. But um, nevertheless, here is what they said on the BioLogos website. 
Over millions of years, a dog-like animal may indeed evolve into something that looks completely unlike a dog. However, this is not something that we would be able to expect to observe. Or to quote it properly, that we would expect to be able to observe. Now, this particular illustration was given in the context of the example that Kent Hovind (laughs) often uses uh, of never seeing a dog produce a non-dog. And of course, the evolutionary rebuttal to that line of thinking is, well, that's a good thing because we would never expect a dog to produce a non-dog. As a matter of fact, they think crucial to evolutionary theory working is the is reproduction um, like that being consistent and properly working. Of course, what they argue is that over time, due to m- many factors, not the least of which, in fact, the most of which is random genetic mutation, um, these certain populations of dogs um, may turn into other organisms. And of course, they also argue that we just have no real concept of deep time and so it's it's hard for us to um to understand that and to put that into perspective uh, they say and so that's how this process works and again we've talked about this before and we're going to talk about it more in a minute i i don't disagree with even common descent evolution i i, I, I disagree with it i don't think it's the i don't think it's correct at all um uh, in the least bit, and it does have serious, serious problems. But I also think that, in one sense, it's a productive framework for biological research. I, I, I don't think that evolutionists are just stupid. I think some very, very smart people hold to this idea, and I think we need to take it more seriously than we often um, do. But in light of comments like this from BioLogos, that we would just not be able to expect to observe it, to me, this is significant. Now, what's interesting is here, we're talking about dating. So remember, these long ages are required. And we talked a little bit about 2 Peter 3, 4, and about this warning concerning uniformitarianism. We talked about that last week. But I want to reiterate this again. 2 Peter 3, and in verse number 4, it says this, um, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now, just looking at this verse in isolation, you might get the wrong idea about what it means. Um, But when you look at this actual passage altogether, it's talking in context about the creation and the flood. Uh, And, of course, the coming judgment um, as well. And so this is talking about this doctrine of uniformitarianism, at least it seems to me, and lots of other Bible um, commentators and expositors. It's dealing with this idea that rates and processes have just forever been the way that they are. Back into the distant past, they deny the creation and they deny the flood. And we see specifically, as we talked about last week, that in Genesis 8.22, um, God gives us a promise that while the earth remaineth, he is going to keep the seasons up. He's going to keep seed time and harvest going. He is going to uphold this earth in a consistent fashion. But that promise only came into effect after the flood. So this idea of deep time, remember, it's necessary to evolutionary theory, and it came in, it's a philosophy, okay? It came in before there was any supporting 
science behind it. It is this philosophy of uniformitarianism, and it, di- it goes right along with the ideas of methodological naturalism, and then also with philosophical naturalism. These ideas that um, that only the natural is to be uh, put forth or to be um, postulated on when we're doing any kind of scientific research. All right, now. So there's a question now. Now, now must we accept deep time in order to be rational Christians? And where I'm going with this is this kind of stems from an objection that we often get from long age, um, from Christians who hold to long age uh, geology and a long age history of the earth. Um, it, it It's this very common misconception that we see. Now, one thing is certainly true. It certainly seems to be easier to get time on a university campus if you don't hold to the young earth idea. I don't necessarily know why that is, but there are some um, apologists and, and, and great Christian thinkers who I respect greatly, who I think are simply egregiously wrong from a scriptural standpoint who often do enjoy a little bit more educational, um, I I guess you'd say, prestige and respect. In many people's eyes, this young age creationist idea is, as we are arguing against, they say it's pseudoscience. That's why we're having this episode. And so um, because of that, a lot of times it's harder to get onto the university campus. It's harder to get respect from scientific peers. But does it mean that we have to accept deep time in order to be rational Christians? Because you see, when it boils down to it, um, this idea of deep time is really all that separates. Uh, there's other nuances, but as far as the uh, at the core of it, this is what separates us from the intelligent design movement proper, us from the old age creationism movement. And I really think all we're doing here is adhering to the Bible. Now, here's the kind of questions that we should be asking. Now, remember, must we accept deep time in order to be rational Christians? This is a very common misconception, and I would say no. Now, here's the question we should ask. As Christians, what kind of world should we expect to see if the Bible is true and has given us an accurate history of the earth? Now, I'm going to repeat that again. What kind of world should we expect to see if the Bible is true and has given us an accurate history of the earth? Here are just six expectations I wrote down. Some of them are biblical, some of them are extra biblical. We should expect to see genealogies giving us um, very specific chronological information. Now remember, uh, if the Bible was not concerned with giving us a history of the earth, we might expect that it would leave details like this out because they don't matter. But it's no accident to me that the only place in ancient Near Eastern literature at all where you have these genealogies giving chronological, very important and specific chronological information like... um, the uh, age of a father when his sons was born and how long he lived after that. We have information like that that is able to give us very specific chronological markers 
where we can form a history of the earth, and we have that. So if the Bible's true, and if we are um, anticipating that the Bible gives us an accurate history of the earth, and that is concerned with that, then we should see that. We should also see biblical writers referring to Genesis as history. We should never see a time when a biblical writer refers to um, Genesis in, in, in context, especially these first few chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, um, in, in a way that would make us think that they're not re- referring to um, historical events. But it appears that they always are. All right, we should also see the person of Jesus Christ referring to Genesis as history. And indeed, we do see that. Mark 10, 6 is a great example. Matthew 19, of course, is another good example of that. Evidence also of the global flood narrative. Physical evidence of the global flood narrative. We should expect to see things like this if the Bible's true and has given us an accurate history of the earth. Now, I wrote, that, I wrote this down that it should include stratigraphical evidence, evidence of um, rapid fossil burial, geological evidence of catastrophe, and we see all of these things. We've dealt with that in one or two podcasts so far. All right, now we should also see, and this is kind of where we're, uh, where the rubber meets the road here with what we have this morning, but we should also see discordant dates given by conventional methods of dating when measured against rocks of known age. So, in other words, um, all things being equal, if we are measuring a rock where we know the age, then we ought to expect for the radiometric ages to give us that information um, in a, you know, in the conventional theory. But that's not what happens. We often see, and most always see, discordant dates when we know the age of the rocks. And finally, we also might expect hard-to-reconcile anomalies given by conventional dating methods such as the unexpected amount of helium found in most rocks. And these things suggest that rates and processes have not always been constant throughout time. And we argued that they weren't. We argued that, especially during the creation week and also during the flood uh, year, that rates and processes um, were vastly different. We argue that they, uh, especially during the creation week, the laws of physics were probably a little different. And so we shouldn't just expect these laws to have been in place ever since the very beginning of the universe, especially talking about millions and millions and millions of years ago. We're only talking about an age for the earth, a little over 6,000 years. And so what should we expect to see if that's true, and those six things I just listed, we do expect to see, and we also do see. Now, are there difficulties? Yes, absolutely. Okay, everybody has unanswerable questions. I want to point out just a few of these here, but everybody, everybody in science has unanswerable questions. There is today, today, the Big Bang Theory, the widest regarded um, best explained or, or, or best, um, I guess you'd say postulated theory for how the universe began under conventional dating and conventional, uh, the conventional paradigm, um, 
has big issues today. Not the least of which is the fact that it doesn't work on the quantum level. This is based on, right, the theory of relativity put forth by Einstein. And you kind of have to do all these mathematical... Um, uh, you, you have to... Let me put this differently. You have to make assumptions, and then when the math starts not working, you have to redo the math a little bit, make new assumptions, and then keep going. And then finally, you can get to what looks like the Big Bang Theory. So it can't be explained very well on the quantum level. And it also has a inflation problem. In other words, uh, the horizon problem, which deals with distant starlight, um, is a problem for the Big Bang. Because right now, you can only get light about halfway across the universe on that model without invoking an inflation theory. And nobody has agreed on these inflation theories, and not one so far has shown to be mathematically sound. So, and that's actually one of the first difficulties that a lot of people throw in for, 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 for our purposes. Um, distant starlight. Folks rightly say, look, um, we've got a problem for the young age view um, because if that's true, then we are either seeing things that are um, out in space that are, are not actually there, that God is just giving us an illusion of this, or um, and there's all these criticisms um, lobbed against us. Now, again, most of these are unfounded you know, I mean, it just simply realizing that this is a starlight is a measure of um, distance, not time, is helpful. Now, some argue that it's time, but you have to assume that the universe is millions of years old in order to make the argument that it's time being recorded. The Bible says over 40 times, I think, something to the effect of the fact that um, God is stretching out the heavens. Now, if God is stretching out the heavens ever since the moment of creation, that does not mean, there's no reason to assume that that means that everything was back at the point of a dot, or 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 or, or that everything was closer. Everything was um, uh, essentially exploded out from the center and going out. It could be that the universe was created at some static point and then been expanding from there. We don't have to bring it down to uh, hit the rewind button and kind of end up with you know some kind of cosmic dot of stardust kind of thing. And I know that's not necessarily what they teach. It's what they used to teach, at least. Um, but the idea is that that's just merely an assumption that you can't prove. There's no, it, there's no need to, to assume that because you can't prove that. So um, ultimately, it's circular reasoning to um, say that, well, the starlight um, is, a, you know, is a problem because it records time. But it really doesn't. It records distance. It is true that it will take millions of light years to get to these places, to get to distant stars, and trillions of light years in some cases. But again... Uh, it's only recording time if you say that it's recording time. Uh, it doesn't necessarily record time. It records distance. So I think starlight is a moot point because it's a big problem for the Big Bangers as well. Um, and of course, I think the Big Bang's got other problems as well. You say, well, what's your theory? Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I don't think it can be scientifically um, ascertained. I do think there is good scientific knowledge to be gained in the field of astronomy from a creationist standpoint. Don't get me wrong. But I think the Bible describes creation as a purely miraculous event. And I'm just not so sure that we're going to be able to understand the creation of the universe from a scientific perspective. Now, I could be wrong about that. I hope I'm proven wrong about that. I think we're still going to keep doing research, right? And we're still going to um, keep digging out more information. We're going to try to understand the universe from a young age perspective. But ultimately, can we come up with a quote-unquote um, Big Bang Theory for young Earth creationists? I don't think so. 
I could be proven wrong and hope I am, but I don't think so. I think creation was a miraculous event. We weren't there. We're not going to be able to observe how it happened. And um, I just think that uh, that's going to be a moot point for young age creationists and older age creationists to go on and on about. All right, now what about um, the laws of physics? Now, this is a really interesting point. And we're going to talk about this coming up. Uh, sometime, I, I actually want to play you this little video. I think it's only 11 or 12 minutes of Dr. Kurt Wise talking about this. Um, the guy's an absolute genius, and, and, and I, I take anything that he, he says pretty seriously. Um, the dating of rocks is usually pretty consistent uh, between methods, though not always. Now, uh, of course... Hardly ever, okay, when compared with rocks of known age. That always throws a monkey wrench into it. But, however, the consistency that we do see in the dating of old age rocks, and again, I, I'm putting a lot of um, uh, thought into this, and I, I want you to catch my drift here. I'm not saying that it's entirely consistent because it's not. Often there are millions of years in discrepancy, and the ages are interpreted to either go along with what the other rocks in the area have already been interpreted to say, or uh, evidence does not speak for itself. Remember, that's the fallacy of reification, all right? Um, evidence requires interpretation based on a worldview which cannot be scientifically determined. You cannot determine your worldview scientifically. Evidence must be interpreted. It does not speak for itself. However, granting for argument's sake here that they do have a uh, some level of consistency. In other words, there might be millions of years of discrepancy, but um, they are certainly out on the distant past. It's not like we're saying, well, this could be 10 years or a million years old. All right. So um, for what that's worth, the consistency that we do see suggests that um, the rate of decay has always been constant. Again, if you don't if you don't postulate the Bible's history of the Earth, if you don't bring a global flood into the picture, then what we find could um, certainly be interpreted to show that the rates and processes have been constant over time for the most part. Now, there are some inconsistencies that we talked about earlier, like radio halos and helium, things like that. But again, um, it could be that um, a change in the laws of physics was required either during the creation week or either that the laws of physics were not fully established during the creation week. And so then uh, the actual creation of the earth would not be bound necessarily under those laws. Or that a little bit of this came into play during the flood year. So, uh, and again, I'm trying to be very careful about this. I'm talking about the laws of physics. Now, this is no small thing to suggest that at one point something might have been different about the laws of physics. So this is, this is, I mean, all of the science that we do today requires the laws of physics to be constant in order to have the uniformity of nature. We need this. We need uniformity in nature so that the future is like the past. That is how scientific experimentation 
works. And so it's no small thing to suggest that at some point in the past, the laws of physics might have either um, not been in play or maybe not, um, maybe were in play universally, but during the creation of the earth, um, uh, specifically just the earth, they were not instituted until God's rest. I, I don't know. There's a lot of unknown here. The point is that in order for the dating um, that we see, we might have to postulate a change in the laws of physics. Now, again, that's not without evidence. Um, the helium found in most rocks is evidence that perhaps things were different um, during that flood year or during the creation week or likely both. But again, what I want to say about this is that it's another one of these moot points. Um, if you suggest a change in the laws of physics, then you're likely going to be laughed at by just about any scientist. But they seem to be neglecting something. In order to have a universe with no God, in other words, a universe, not from nothing in the, what physicists mean by nothing. We're going to talk about that in, a, in, a, in an upcoming episode very soon. But I'm talking about no thing, the absence of anything. I mean the absence of laws, the absence of absolutely anything. Number one, I don't know how you get a universe like that. The best argument that can be given is, oh, we're here, so therefore the universe, you know, exists. Okay, well, that's the fallacy of a relevant thesis. That's not a good reason for why the universe is here. But, notwithstanding, think about what has to be violated in order to get right here where we are on the conventional paradigm. At the very, at the very least, we've got problems. I'm, I'm going to be... I'm going to be gracious here. And at the very least, we've got problems with the first and second laws of thermodynamics and the law of biogenesis. That, that's being very gener generous. We have to violate three core laws of science in order to get to where we are today. So if all I have to violate... Remember, in the supernatural context, it's not a problem. The, um, what, what we find uh, in the nature of the universe is that it suggests a first cause that was transcendent, immaterial, powerful, full of all knowledge, personal. What we find is that the beginning, of, the beginning cause of the universe sure matches um, the biblical view of God. But... Again, that means that miracles are possible. The supernatural is possible. And so that's not a problem. And all I'm talking about here is violating the law of, of physics during the creation week, which is perfectly reasonable in that context. It's also reasonable that if God made the world and if something was different during the, during the, um, uh, because of the catastrophic upheaval during flood year that was going on on this earth, if something was a little different, um, in the physical sciences then, in, 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 in the laws of nature then, then I would not be surprised about that either. It was a catastrophic event such um, that it would destroy every living thing on the face of the earth except for Noah and his family. 
what would that take? It would take quite a bit. So again, so we have, so, so we have, we, uh, we are suggesting that perhaps the laws of physics were different, but under conventional theory, you have to at least violate the laws of thermodynamics and the law of biogenesis. And it has to be done completely by chance, unguided, completely by chance. So, again, this is another moot point. I have no problem believing that the laws of physics might be different. I have a much bigger problem believing that a universe came into being out of no thing and that all of these laws up to this point, these scientific laws, have to be violated to get here. See, if you just give them one or two or three exceptions, we can get to where we are. So anyway, the laws of physics. Okay, now the, the final thing that I want to say as far as difficulties go is this. Um, the fossil record, does it prove an old earth? Does the fossil record prove an old earth? Well, um, hardly. <laughs> okay, and again, see what we talked about there um, um, ab above. You can go back, go um, uh, rewind your podcast a little bit and talk about um, a little bit of what we learned on the fossil record. And also... You can, uh, or, or, and, and we actually talked more about this last week. So you can go back to last week's episode, um, lesson 33, and check that out. We also dealt specifically with this in lesson nine. Can the flood explain the geologic column? And so I'll put that in the show notes for you as well. And we talk about that there. Now, I, I want to reiterate something that I said last week, and I wrote it down for this week as well because it's very, very important. Something is not pseudoscience in virtue of the fact that it disagrees with the majority view. Now, I wrote about this on my website, and I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes to this as well. I wrote about this um, in my article, Five Myths of Higher Education and Peer Review. Five Myths of Higher Education and Peer Review. Now, I value both of these things, higher education and peer review, but there are five myths, I think, that are widely associated with those things that people need to know. And so I encourage you to go check that out. But... Uh, but but our view, young age creation science, is not pseudoscience. Simply in virtue of the fact that it disagrees with the majority. In a CMI article titled, all, Can All Those Scientists Be Wrong? It gives examples from astronomy, chemistry, medicine, and biology where the majority view was simply wrong. Yes, it's quite a uh, recurring theme in science, in fact, that is how most good science gets done, that the majority view gets overturned one day. Michael Crichton, famous author who uh, previously held a career in medicine, said this, and it's quoted in that CMI article. Let's be clear, quote, the work of science has nothing whatever to do with consensus. Consensus is the business of politics. Science, on the contrary, requires only one investigator who happens to be right, which means that he or she has results that are verifiable by reference to the real world. In science, consensus is irrelevant. What is relevant is reproducible results. The greatest scientists in history are great precisely because they broke with the consensus. So that's an important point that I think um, we need to see. Now, lastly, before we move on here, I want to um, address a question with this that uh, no doubt has been going through your mind. It goes through the mind of almost anybody I talk to who deals with this. 
Is it valid to start with the Bible? This is a fair question. Uh, Just the other day, in a conversation, I had somebody to tell me, uh, look, um, it's not good science to start with the Bible. We should follow the evidence where it leads. Again, there's there's that fallacy of reification that pops up everywhere. Evidence does not speak for itself. It must be interpreted according to a worldview. Your assumptions matter. Is it valid to start with the Bible? Well, I want to kind of give you a quick little argument for this. First of all, secular scientists start with three unprovable assumptions. Assumption number one is that there is no God. Right? So, now this affects every area of life, practice, teaching, etc. Now remember, uh, largely, the word atheism has been redefined to mean something more like agnosticism. It's been redefined by most people, especially the mainstream, to, uh, to to simply mean that it's this passive disbelief in God. But again, in order to disbelieve in God, you have to make other assertions about the world and about the way the world is. And if there is a God, to quote C.S. Lewis, it is of infinite importance, right? Christianity, if true, is of infinite importance, is, is what he said as part of a larger quote. So, if there is no God, then, and if you live as if there is no God, it's going to affect everything about the way you live your life. Everything. So, I would argue that this is um, uh, an unprovable assumption, that there is no God. You cannot universally prove that there is no God. You can choose to not believe in a God, but again, if you do, you have to realize that it affects the way you think. All right, now number two, the present is the key to the past. This is the second unprovable assumption. The present is the key to the past. This is, again, that philosophy of uniformitarianism, as we see in 2 Peter 3. And it's this idea that all scientific rates and processes are always the same and have always been the same since the beginning of the universe, uh, presumably um, after the universe somehow began itself. And then the third unprovable assumption is philosophical naturalism. In other words, nature is all that exists. And not only that, but that carries over into uh, methodological naturalism, which says that we should only test um, and, and bring into our um, theories of how uh, the world works, we should only go by nature. The supernatural mustn't be allowed. That is the idea. Now, here's the problem. If that were true, we could never know it. <laughs> if that were true, we could never know it. And there's uh, Alvin Plantinga has argued I think beautifully, in his evolutionary argument against naturalism about this. And I'm not going to go into all the the details of that. We'll probably talk about that sometime. But Alvin Plantinga is a well-respected Christian philosopher. He basically argues, look, if naturalism is true, um, then natural selection does a good job selecting for our survival value. But it has nothing to do with selecting for truth. 
And so therefore, even if naturalism were true, we could never rationally affirm it. In other words, his whole argument is that the conflict lies not between science and religion, not between um, even religion and evolution, which of course I disagree with, but his argument is that naturalism and science, or this idea of Darwinian evolutionism, common descent, undirected, and um, um, science are actually at odds. You can't rationally affirm both evolution and naturalism, basically, is his argument there. All right, so and I think it's a good one. We should look into that sometime. I'm sure we will. All right, now, if that's the case, if, if secular scientists start with those three unprovable assumptions, why is it invalid to start with our assumptions? What would our assumptions be? Our assumptions would be that there is a God. And by the way, going on another um, Alvin Plantinga argument, this could be called a, pop, a, um, a, a properly basic belief. And if you read about this, it makes so much sense. He's got a popular book out about this called Knowledge and Christian Belief that I highly, highly recommend you get. And I'm not even through with the whole thing yet, but, but just at the most basic level, the idea is that there are some things that you believe so strongly you don't choose to believe them. You just do. And uh, I think the argument that he's going to develop, and again, I'm, I'm just a little bit into it, and I know a little bit about his argument here, but I think the argument that he is advancing is that this um, regeneration, this knowledge that we gain of, of God through the Holy Spirit is so properly basic to our lives and to our experience that we're rational in holding it because we don't choose to believe it. We just do. We 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 understand when the evidence comports and when the evidence doesn't comport, we're just unconvinced because we know that we have experienced God. And again, I'm, I'm probably not representing that exactly right, but in either case, I say that if you can start with the assumption that there is no God, then I say you can start with the assumption that there is a God, right? Assumption number two, the Bible is true because there is a God and he has revealed himself. So we can say the Bible is true and the history given within it is an eyewitness account from the one who created the cosmos. So we start with that assumption. And then, thirdly, the supernatural, in virtue of there being a God, exists. That's it. And if we can start with those assumptions, we'll see that the real difference here is our starting point. If we start with those assumptions... Science does not conflict with what we find. Science proper, all right, does not conflict with what we find written in the pages of God's work. Because science must, um, facts and evidence must be interpreted. And we interpret according to a worldview using our assumptions. So we can validly start with these assumptions and then come up not only with the history of the earth, but with a scientific understanding of the history of our earth. So the real difference, again, is our starting point. If you have a different starting point, you have different scientific conclusions. They are not unscientific. They are not pseudoscientific conclusions because they merely start with different unprovable assumptions. Again, I would argue that biblical assumptions actually are provable, um, but that's a different podcast. Let's just, for the sake of argument, let's just say that our assumptions are unprovable, but so are theirs. So all things being equal, we can each come to different scientific conclusions based on our valid assumptions. God may exist, but again, this does not study, uh, invalidate the study of the natural world. It just changes how the evidence 
is interpreted. That's the only difference. Now, before we end it for this week, we need to spend a few minutes on Darwin. And I've gone a lot longer on dating, but of course, um, uh, we talk about Darwin a lot. So uh, this is an obvious difference between us and um, and the mainstream scientists. Um, so let's just deal with that real quick before we are finished up for this week. So what 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 do we mean uh, by, and again, if you have any questions about this, let me just go back. If you have any questions about this, feel free to visit our website, steveshram.com. Uh, you'll be able to get there from different links in the show notes. And on the right-hand side of the screen, there is a big blue button there that says uh, ask a question or something to that effect, okay? Uh, you just click that, and you can actually talk into the microphone on your computer and ask a, a question, and we'll play the question on the podcast. So if you have any question as to what we've talked about thus far uh, regarding dating or what we've talked about on a different podcast episode, feel free to go to our website and use that. Look, I don't get to do that often enough. I love to answer questions. Um, no question is too hard. No question is too challenging. Um, I'm willing to take it on. So go ahead and send your questions in, and we'll uh, deal with those here on the podcast. Now, we affirm this is uh, in regards to 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 Darwin. Well, we have to get the definitions right. All right. Now we affirm the change of uh, the definition of change over time. Now remember, according to Biologos, like we talked about, this is all we expect to observe and do observe. And so because of that, therefore, we reject the notion of long-age, fish-to-philosophers, Darwinian evolution. And I think we're rationally justified in doing that because all we observe is change over time. Now, you're welcome to assume the long-age hypothesis and use other evidence to try to prove that, and you're welcome to do that and then interpret um, the, the genetic and the scientific data regarding um, the biological organisms according to that paradigm but since that's not necessarily what we observe, since all we observe is change over time, then I think we're quite justified in saying that there are limits to that change. And it's interesting, when you look at the fossil record and you see um, organisms that have been in stasis for hundreds of millions of years, according to paradigm, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, conventional paradigm uh, of history, um, that's a problem. Stasis is, 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 especially for that long, is really not an expectation of long-age Darwinian evolution theory. Um, and so this is an issue for them. As a matter of fact, some organisms have basically remained virtually, most have remained virtually unchanged. Um, we have many of the organisms that we find today, we have um, an accounting of them in the fossil record. Most organisms. So... Um, Anyway, point being that stasis is something that we do observe, um, and change over time is also something that we do observe, but that gives us good grounds to reject the notion of this long-age theory. So this also means that we disaffirm the notion of cosmic evolution, uh, because remember, the long ages are not required now, so when the long ages go out, we can throw out cosmic evolution, chemical evolution, and organic evolution, which would be defined as... Um, abiogenesis, right? The idea that life can come from non-life, which, of course, we don't deserve. Now, uh, what's interesting is that this is not um, something that is limited to just young age creationism. What's interesting here is that we have the full force of old age creationists. We also have the full force of the intelligent design movement, which I find... Um, Interesting. They're doing some good work over there, I think, at the Discovery Institute. We often write them off because of the age of the earth issue, but they're doing some good work against Darwinian theory, uh, in my humble opinion. 
but it's also the evolutionists. And especially in reference to this neo-Darwinian um, idea. Uh, in other words, neo-Darwinian idea would kind of um, lend credence to this idea that evolutionary theory is sufficient to accomplish abiogenesis or to accomplish biogenesis, I guess we should say, to accomplish life coming from non-life. According to Austrian evolutionary theorist uh, Gerd Mueller, uh, remember some of the evolutionists are jumping on this, um, at the Royal Society meeting uh, recently, evolution theory, as taught in the textbooks, still is unable to account for um, phenotypic complexity, so the origin of, um, of, of, of eyes, ears, body plans, um, anatomical and structural features of, of living creatures. It's unable to account still for phenotypic um, novelty. So the origin of new forms throughout the history of life. For example, um, under conventional dating, the mammalian radiation about 66 million years ago, in which uh, the major orders of mammals, such as um, cetaceans, bats, carnivores, um, they enter the fossil record. Or even more dramatically, of course, what they interpret to be the Cambrian explosion, um, with most animal body plans appearing more or less without um, antecedents. And then also, it's unable to account for these non-gradual forms or modes of transition. Um, in other words, we see abrupt discontinuities in the fossil record between different types. So according to this um, evolutionary theorist, we've got big problems with evolution theory as currently taught in the textbooks. So we're not alone on this, and the the uh, the list is growing. Uh, the Discovery Institute actually just put out a new book called uh, Heretic, and I think Jonathan Witt, I want to say, is one of the co-writers on that. But it's a true story about a um, about a gentleman. I forget his name, but it's it's written more. Um, it's not a book in defense of intelligent design necessarily, but I think the book is called Heretic: From Darwin to Design, and it's um, this guy who just. Uh, began to look at the evidence objectively and, um, and and looked at the possibility that what we see in nature couldn't have happened by chance and that it must have been designed. And, and he began to see this. And this book kind of um, chronicles that journey that he had in, uh, in, in coming to the, uh, the idea that, in, indeed, this universe has been designed. Now, I'm not sure whether he's a Christian. I'm sure you could read the book and ascertain that. I'm, I'm just not sure. Um, but nevertheless, he moved from this Darwin idea to the design idea. Now, so does this particular rejection make us pseudoscientists? Are we pseudoscientists because we reject the definition of evolution that according to the evolutionists... We wouldn't expect to observe? Does does that somehow follow? Does that make us pseudoscientists? Look, we make scientific predictions based on our presuppositions about Earth history. We run the tests or examine the tests of others and interpret the results. Now, how is that any different than conventional science? I think a lot of people mistakenly, um, again, mistakenly, import their idea that if we come to a different conclusion than the majority consensus of conventional science, that that makes what we do pseudoscience. But in the history of scientific study, that has never, ever been the case. And again, we can't say that the assumptions are invalid. We just talked about that. 
if your assumptions are unprovable um, across the board, all things being equal, then there's nothing pseudoscientific about us starting with that. In fact, history is a, a very appropriate means of gaining knowledge. And this all goes back to scientism, right? This idea that science is the only way to gain knowledge. I mean, look, um, if all of history records that Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth, even though we can't scientifically test that, does that mean that that did not happen? Suppose all the scientific and um, 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 forensic type evidence was against that that happened. But eyewitnesses saw it and wrote it down, and it's been propagated throughout history. And as long as our memory is reliable, and as long as um, uh, the eyewitnesses have been you know, somewhat reliable in the past and corroborated by other eyewitnesses, um, history is a perfectly good means of attaining uh, knowledge. So why not earth history as recorded in the Bible by the one who created it? Again, my point is not that everybody is just going to accept that or even that they should. My point is that it's valid. It's not an invalid starting point, and therefore it's not pseudoscience. Now, sometimes the results match our expectations. Sometimes we do the science and we say, look, this matches the expectations that we made based on our presuppositions, based on our worldview. Guess what? Sometimes they don't. And when they don't, we adjust. We try to figure out what the real story is. How is this any different than conventional Science. Now, on this point, some will say that conventional science follows the evidence where it leads. But again, we have to understand one, two crucial differences. The first crucial difference is the evidence does not speak for itself. I've hammered that point home this week for a reason. It does not speak for itself. But also that we are dealing with science trying to ascertain historical information. But in our case, we've got the record of Abraham Lincoln. In other words, we've got the written history of the earth. So we can do science according to true presuppositions that have historical value. Now that is somewhat of a difference. But again, you can't just say that you're, that you're neutrally following the evidence where it leads because there's no such thing as neutrality. You have to interpret based on assumptions. And when you do that, you will come to different conclusions based on your assumptions. The question is, are ours valid? Since ours records actual history, yes, absolutely valid. Now, let me just give you one example of many, many, many great predictions have been made by creationist scientists. Um, by the way, the dude who, uh, who invented the MRI, right? Uh, Demadian, I think his name was. He is a young age creationist. Creationists can be and are real scientists who do good work. You do not have to believe in evolution theory to be considered a, quote, real scientist, unquote. All right, here's just one example of many about predictions. Um, last year, um, um, in his book, Replacing Darwin, Dr. Nathaniel Jensen published expectations about the rates and method of speciation that we ought to expect to see if our theory of Earth history is true. Now, recent studies, and I'm, I'm actually going to go uh, onto a more deep dive, okay, onto this later um, in a different podcast, but for right now, um, I just want to bring it to you uh, kind of at face value here. Recent secular studies on the Galapagos finches, the same ones that Darwin first observed in his theory, 
um, have confirmed his theories preliminary on both counts. In other words, on the rates and the method of speciation. Now remember, this is just one study. This is very, very recent publications. But even the secular journal entry is about these faster rates than previously anticipated of speciation being observed in the Galapagos finches. Can I just stop right here and say how amazing would it be if Darwin's finches were the very thing that helped to finally overturn Darwinian evolution? Now that would be coming full circle, my friends. Now, specifically with regards to this study, namely, it appears that bird species are forming at a rate much faster than evolution predicts. So evolution predicts on an average, all right, about one species every 6,000 years. So no wonder they think we're a little crazy. According to their history of the Earth, we should have only seen one new species form in the whole time that we think the Earth has been here. In the universe. One new species every 6,000 years. Now, on the creation model, we um, are uh, anticipating 2.4 new species average per year. If we apply this just to bird populations, we get somewhere uh, on the observable data, we get somewhere between 3.4 to 12 new species per year. Now that is much more in line and actually faster than anticipated than our creation model of Earth history. So we're starting to see um, things that are at least preliminar preliminarily, excuse me, confirming our theories. Um, and then with regards to the method, it appears that species are separating um, also due to homozygosity rather than simply just random mutation. And on the evolution theory, uh, most, if not all, speciation events due to um, random mutation acting, are, are due, excuse me, to random mutation acting on the genome over long ages, um, and of course also on the epigenome as well. Now these are, these eventually translate into um, uh, what we call ecological speciation, but again, for the most part, speciation events are due to random genetic mutation. On the creation model, faster speciation events rely on natural selection, epigenetics, and the homozygosity of breakaway populations. And we would anticipate these faster speciation events happening on this method, and that's exactly what has been recently observed by secular scientists in their study of the Galapagos finches. Other studies conducted by Dr. Dodwood, uh, Todd Wood, excuse me, uh, along these lines, seem to suggest that altruistic gene elements, or ages, as he calls them, could also be responsible for some of the rapid speciation that we postulate post-flood. And I haven't done a lot of study on that. But that is another theory for the rapid speciation that a lot of times we're, we're accused of um, uh, having to posit these way faster rates, at these unreasonable rates. But look, that's what the observable science is starting to show. Now, here's my point. Now, you can disagree with this, and it could be, and, and even Jensen says in his articles explaining this, he even says that this could be overturned. I mean, right now, um, we would at least be back to square one without this particular study in, in, in the Galapagos. Um, but here's my point. These are scientific propositions. We often get claimed of just um, getting to a point where we don't understand what's going on and then saying God did it, right? This is the whole God of the gaps thing. 
But I think God is the God of the gaps and God of everything we do know. Remember, my argument is not uh, we know some things, but we don't know some other things. Therefore, God exists to fill the gap in our knowledge. That is not the argument of anyone who rejects Darwinian evolution theory. The argument is, at least from my perspective here, God exists. Therefore, the known and the unknown make sense. And that's what we see. Now, I, I used this example the other day. If the Bible told us that, uh, if the Bible remained the same, let's just say that we lived in another world where the Bible was the same as it was, all things being, everything was the same, except spontaneous generation was a proven fact. In other words, I could wake up one morning, go out to the living room to make my coffee, and a lion might have spontaneously generated in my living room. In that world, the Bible would not be true. I hope you can see that. There's no way to reconcile that sort of thing. Remember, because Creation Week stopped. Matter does not just spontaneously uh, create itself, nor does God spontaneously create matter. And this is consistent, of course, with the first law of thermodynamics. So, um, the point being here that this is not a God of the apps argument. The world that we see makes sense, but it makes sense because we have this biblical history to rely on, and everything is consistent. God's world matches God's word. It is not a God of the gaps argument, and we're not merely saying that God did it. We are using our presuppositions that there is a God who upholds the universe. That just means that we have justification for the things that evolutionists typically take for granted. Point being here, again, that this is scientific. These are scientific propositions. These are scientific um, 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 experiments that are being run, even though our base assumption is that God exists. That does not mean we appeal to a miracle every time we don't scientifically understand something. I hope you know that, and I hope that using some of the information that we talked about today, you can help others that you talk to to understand that. And we got to cut it off uh, for today. We're already in a minute, uh, excuse me, in an hour and five minutes, almost six minutes. So uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, and say a prayer. Remember now, go to the website, check out um, um, our, our preaching page, invite us in. Hey, we'd love to come speak at your church um, and, uh, and help equip your members to defend their faith uh, with confidence. Um, Remember the Creation Academy. Go to jointca.co, jointca.co, and get signed up for uh, the Creation Academy. To um, uh, remember, we're still looking at launching around 2019, hopefully early 2019, to be able to teach young Earth creation science um, in an even more uh, involved and structured and an elegant way. And so head over there to jointca.co to learn more about that and to get signed up for the wait list. And um, again, remember to go on the website and ask your questions as well. If you have any questions about what we've talked about today, uh, we can address them on the podcast next week. All right. Uh, God bless you guys. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy. Father, we don't deserve a single thing that you've given us. We certainly don't deserve you to have stepped down into our lives, to have uh, become a man and to humble yourself. And certainly, Lord, we do not deserve you have to give in your life for ours. I love the old song that says, His life for mine, your life uh, for mine. Father, that is a trade that I'll never understand, but I'll forever remain grateful for. Thank you, Father, for... Uh, giving us your word, for revealing yourself to us. 
Romans 1 says that the creation uh, testifies to you, Lord, that the invisible things of you are clearly seen and understood by the things that are made. We thank you, Lord, for your great revelation. We thank you most of all for saving our unworthy souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for joining me this week on the Creation Academy. I hope you'll uh, join us again next week right here, same time. All right? God bless, and have a good week. Bye-bye.